Kalesa is a Pali word that says uh, something about the afflictions or the defilements of our mind. And so rather than dealing with the bright side of things, uh, for the next three weeks, we're going to think about the afflictions and defilements with the idea being that if we notice afflictions and defilements, that then we can be more alert, more aware, and be more effective in our practice in dealing with them. It's a great pleasure to be here. This is a new approach, working with Andrea and with Chris. We've had a chance to get together and talk about our practices and talk about how we relate to these kalesas. And so what my wish is tonight is to spend just a little bit of time talking about the afflictions or defilements in general, and then to focus most specifically on the one that I most relate to, which is greed. And I think it's wonderful what April 15th is kind of a symbol (laughs) for greed here in our society. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I filed my returns electronically today and punched the button and sent them off. And uh, I did it at 2 o'clock this afternoon, which was a big victory. Usually it's like 11 o'clock on April 15th. For some reason, I always owe the government. And so my greed says if I just hang on to it until April 15th at 11 o'clock, I've really done something. (laughs) What I've done is I've uh, encouraged this greedy approach to things. So I'll talk a little bit about, in general, the kalesis and then focus specifically. And then I'd like to have about 20 minutes at the end where we can do some interactive, reflective things um, where we have a chance to talk. I think it's especially important to have a chance to talk. I know I've experienced giving Dharma talks before where people... Uh, kind of take it in and become very quiet and uh, reflective and in, inside, internal. And tonight I'd like to go in a, a little bit more of a different direction. So not only will be, we'll be looking at the negative side or the defilements, but I'd like to spend a little time um, actually verbalizing or encouraging you to verbalize about this. One of the practices that I think is so effective in healing is to become aware. And if we interact, my experience has been that uh, my interactions, especially around the defilements with Andrea and with Chris, have really sharpened the way I look at it. And in the last four or five weeks that we've been contemplating this, I've just been, uh, the world has been filled with chances to think about defilements. So, a little bit of expression. The word kalesa talks uh, particularly about all three of the defilements. And the defilement of greed is known as loba, L-O-B-H-A in English, loba, roughly in Pali. Aversion or avoidance is dosa, and delusion is moha. And so Buddhist ancient Theravadan tradition has said that uh, our mind is like a cloth that can be stained, and so that the pattern of the cloth can be obscured, and it becomes unusable. And so if our mind is like that, The stains, the particular stains, are these things, greed, avoidance, or delusion. There are various flavors of these. And so when Andrea talks about avoidance and Chris talks about delusion and I talk about greed, we'll try to be more uh, realistic or offer something that is a little bit more uh, relatable. Other words that talk uh, about this 
fact of defilement includes malevolence, anger, rancor, hypocrisy, arrogance, envy, miserliness, dishonesty, boastfulness, obstinacy, violence, pride, conceit, intoxication, and competency. These come from Access to Insight, which is a wonderful resource that you may know of. It's on the Internet. You can just do a search for Access to Insight, and you can do lots of investigating, um, putting in words to search and coming up with uh, translations of, in particular, the Pali Canon, the traditional teachings that have been passed down in the Theravadan tradition. So access to insight says that all of those underlie the defilements. And when Chris and Andrea and I got together, we thought that really even underlying those is fear. And so the way I conceive of a kalesa is that it is not my way. I am not getting my way. I want something that I'm not getting. And I want it enough that there's a heat. There's an intensity to it. And so the heat comes from the fear. And I think our culture is so much a culture of we should have it our way. Uh, You know, you go to get your fast food and you want it your way. You want it with just the right amount of addition and you want the right size and you know, and even to have, uh, you know, the right little tchotchkes that come along with it. Uh, I want it my way. So my way may mean I need to get something that I don't have. I need to get away from something that's present or I need to fuzz out. These are habitual refuges. These are ways that we act out the fear that we aren't whole, that we aren't complete and that things aren't our way, the the way we'd like them. We have a biological heritage, uh, a body, an emotional system, and a mind that comes down to us from millennia. And our emotional system is tuned toward our survival. And I think of Gary Snyder's uh, sitting as being the sitting that we did when we were in the jungle 30,000 years ago. And as we sat, we listened and we waited for sounds to come. And the sounds had meaning for us. They were either something we wanted, maybe something we could eat, or they were something that we had to get away from, something that would eat us, or they were something that we didn't want to pay any attention to. And so I think we're set up as evolved beings with the tools that we have to cope with life to do those three things. And it's the wisdom of the teachers that clustered around the Buddha to put it in specific language so that we can see these things and we can practice with these things. Greed feels like something I must have. And if I don't have it, the heat's there. Aversion feels like something I have to get away from. I have to get rid of something. And delusion feels like I will not be safe or I will not be fulfilled if I stay aware or if I stay connected. In the Iti Vutaka uh, section of the Pali Canon, there's a piece that kind of poetically talks about kalesas. I'm going to read it. And then we'll go on from there. It says, greed causes harm. Greed provokes the mind. People don't realize it as a danger born from within. A person, when greedy, doesn't know his own welfare. When greedy, doesn't see the way that things really are. Overcome with greed, he's in the dark, blind. But when one abandoning greed feels no greed for what would merit greed usually, greed gets shed from him like a drop of water off a lotus leaf. Aversion causes harm. Aversion provokes the mind. 
people who don't realize it as a danger born from within. A person, when aversive, doesn't know his own welfare. When aversive, doesn't see the way things are. Overcome with aversion, he is in the dark, blind. But when one abandoning aversion feels no aversion for what would merit aversion usually, aversion drops away from him, like a palm leaf from its stem. Delusion causes harm. Delusion provokes the mind. People don't realize it as a danger born from within. A person, when deluded, doesn't know his own welfare. When deluded, doesn't see the way things really are. Overcome with delusion, he's in the dark, blind. But when one abandoning delusion feels no delusion for what would normally merit it, he he disperses all delusion as the rising of the sun, the dark. So these are the way the ancient ones that carried on the teaching of the Buddha centuries after he lived, verbalized it. And this, of course, is translated into modern English. Uh, this, uh, again, is from Access to Insight. Tanasaro Bhikkhu uh, is the translator. So how do we deal with these afflictions? What are the ways that we can be more aware so that when the afflictions are present, that we can use practice, we can use our awareness and our ability to choose so that we're not overcome with these. So now I'm going to focus just on greed tonight. And we'll hear from Andrea and Chris in subsequent weeks. I first really thought about greed through the Judeo-Christian tradition that I was raised in, in that the teaching of a rich man having as much chance of getting to heaven as a camel passing through the eye of a needle. You may have heard this. And it struck me that there's really no way a camel's going to get through the eye of the needle. So my guess is that a rich man's not going to get into heaven. And I think that that was to encourage generosity and uh, acceptance of the way things are. Really, I don't think there's anything wrong with being rich. In our tradition, it's not the fact of richness that's the problem. It's our attachment to it. It's our clinging. We have a fear of not being rich. We want to be rich. We promote richness. We give our life to creating richness. We've had so much in public life recently about Enron and other kinds of scandals of ethical breach. And lots has been written about this in our country. And our country is really an interesting site for this because we encourage greed, really, when you think about it. A corporation is set up to create wealth for its shareholders. And so there is a one-pointed focus. It's not about helping the population in general or doing good deeds. Now, many corporations do that because of the generosity of the spirit of the people that work there and so on. And uh, there are many ways that goodness gets spread. But kind of the rules that we operate by encourage greed. And those of us who are living or willing to live out on the margins push that boundary and test that boundary. What really is greed and what really is acceptable? There's a New York Times article that I like that uh, talks a little bit about this. Talks about the instances of greed and the people that have gone to jail in recent times. Uh, They say... So much is done by peer pressure. Some research was done at Sunbeam Corporation by a professor who looked at the ways that greed got um, manifested there. And then they talked about the good news is that more companies in the last decade have adopted enforced codes of ethics and ongoing educational programs to help combat ethical breaches. There's some evidence that such programs help 
For instance, 13% of employees from companies with ethics programs in place still felt pressure to compromise their company's standards. But 23% of employees who felt this pressure in workplaces that had no ethics or ethical program gave in to this. So the goal of accomplishing or accumulating or acquiring gets modified by ethical programs. It says, and despite grim revelations over Enron and fears that Enron-itis is spreading to other companies, observers say that ethics in the workplace is actually improving. Indeed, the Ethics Officer Association of the United States, a group formed a decade ago to promote ethical business practices, now counts more than 700 U.S. corporations in its membership. So having it my way has to be moderated. And culturally, we've come up with various ways of moderating it. Ethical standards, uh, ethical officers and companies, uh, the IRS who will scan my return electronically, maybe already have. So there are ways that we moderate it, but what it all comes down to is uh, that each of us has the opportunity to moderate it for ourselves. For me, the practice that was begun by the Buddha and carries on through Theravadan tradition says so much about how to be self-moderating, self-aware, to notice what pieces of greed are operating in our life, in my life, and to see what underlies that, to see what the fear is. What am I afraid of that I have to have it my way? I was in Egypt uh, about 12 years ago, and I went to a souk, the marketplace, where there's tables, and on the cloth on the tables, there's all sorts of wares, and sometimes you find things that you want, sometimes you, you don't. I walked through this souk in Cairo, and I saw a guy that had a lot of things that kind of attracted me. He had a, a really nice brass teapot, and uh, he had a book that I liked, and there was a CD of some Egyptian music. So I went around and I gathered up everything, and I sort of mentally calculated uh, what his posted price was. And I know that the posted price is just a place to start. I'm not very good at it because I live in a country where the posted price really is the way we go for the most part. But anyway, I was going to give it a try. So I came up with what the total was, and I set it down in front of him, and I kind of mentally calculated what 80% of it was. And I said, well, what's your best price? And I thought, you know, he'd come in at a little under what he said. He, he told me something that was less than the 80% that I was already at. And so I could have said, wow, great, we've got a deal. But I didn't. I was... Excited, I thought, whoa, if he starts below where I was willing to go, how low will he go? And so I said, well, I don't know. I don't think that's good enough. What you got to do better than that. And so we went down a little lower than that. And so I could have smiled and been on my way. And I, but I, there was something that was just got me. <laughs> And so we went back and forth, and finally we ended up where we were just maybe 50 cents apart in terms of American money for a pile of things. But by that time, he was stuck on his position, and I was stuck on my position. And I just, I was feeling frustrated, and I was starting to feel a little angry, and, and all of these emotions were coming in that were, really weren't appropriate, because I was a winner. <laughs> <laughs> Right from the beginning. And so I said, well, I just can't agree to this. What can you do to make this happen? And he looked at me, and I was at a conference, and I had my name badge for this conference. And he said, you give me the name badge, and we've got a deal. 
So I took off this name badge and gave it to him along with the amount that I was willing to pay. And he smiled and went away a winner. And I smiled and went away feeling like a, uh, like I had gotten what I wanted too. And it, uh, later on, I thought, what is he going to do with this name badge? <laughs> but really, it didn't make any difference. It, it, was, it was just something to break the log jam that we'd gotten ourselves into. And uh, by, in my way of looking at it, my greed. I, I had no reason to bargain the way I did, except just simply wanting it my way. But we did end up being friendly, and uh, it was a successful conclusion. But it taught me something about how just sheer cussedness, just sticking to a position, can get out of hand. And particularly when money's on the table. I don't know why money has this particular uh, deluding influence, but it does. So that set me to thinking, what harm does greed do in my life? And I realized that there was a lot of opportunity that I had uh, to live freely and joyfully that I was being occupied with getting just my way, getting what I exactly needed, having a conclusion that I could stand behind, saving face or saving my own position. The practice of our particular approach, Theravadan Buddhism, traditionally has three first approaches or three early approaches. And the first of them is generosity. So that if you go to a country where there's many Buddhists, when people start practicing, the first thing that they focus on is offering things to others. And it's a practice. It's a daily, hourly practice to find ways to give that thing that breaks the logjam and makes things work. And in the poorer countries, food often, uh, particularly for people that are practicing, for the monks. So sometimes after years of generosity practice, the next is morality or faultlessness, practicing doing things not only generously, but in a way that follows principles and precepts. And then finally, after years of that, comes what's called bhavana in the uh, Theravadan tradition, which are working with mental states. And so in a way, I look at my practice as being the reverse of that, I started my practice around meditation, which is working with the inner states, becoming aware of what's going on with that. And the more I've done that, the more I've realized that that has to happen in a life that is harmless and faultless and based on moral principles. Because if it isn't, I can't meditate. My mind is continuously occupied with the parts of things that I'm not being just or appropriate with. And then when all of that happens and works, I have a freedom in which I can give to other people. And that's really the joy of my life, is finding places to give. So I've kind of gone backwards from the Theravadan tradition. The self-talk that goes inside me is... In terms of greed, I'll run out of something. I'll, I'll not have something that I need or I won't be able to survive. I had an experience in working with my late wife who died of cancer in 1995 in the last years of her life. And medical bills that were huge and, uh, you know, I'd go get a prescription for five little pills and the bill would be $750. Uh, Nupogen, I think, was the name of this stuff that I just I couldn't believe. I, I thought it was off two decimal places at least. But it was $750 for five pills. And so experiences like that started this self-talk. I, can I survive? What happens? Are we going to end up out on the street? 
I, I had pictures of our furniture being moved out in the driveway and us having to live this way because we just run out of money. And it, somehow running out of money was just the ultimate for me. And I remember noticing this. Holy cow, you know, I need to somehow come to grips because this could go on for quite a while longer. And so I came up with sort of an operating guideline that if I had to refinance the house and sell it in order to pay off the mortgage, that that was a signal that then I I needed to take some other action. But before that happened, I would just proceed ahead and pay the bills and get whatever treatment was needed and just be supportive. And it was really freeing to set up that kind of a guideline that I could, within that boundary, I could operate. And amazingly, about two weeks passed by and people spontaneously, without me saying anything about this, came up to me and five people, there were three friends and two relatives, close relatives, that came up to me and said, you know, it may be a hard time financially. If you need some money, let me know. And it was just incredibly affirming to me that uh, that this could happen. And I, so my spirits were raised. And as it turned out, uh, we never did have our furniture moved out in the driveway. And it worked. But it just gave me such a beautiful example of spontaneous generosity. There was no solicitation. I didn't, uh, you know, there was no um, particular cause that I could see for five people to make this generous statement my way. But what an impact it had. So how does practice, how does my practice, our practice, help us deal with greed? First thing that I've noticed is that things happen in my body. And if I can be attentive to what's going on in my body, then this haggling over pennies doesn't get to be such a thing. So meditative practice, knowing what's happening in the body, being sensitive and aware. If I can stay in my body, I'll notice those words if I only had or if I only could get. So from being connected with my body, mindfulness allows me to be in touch with what's underlying the motivations that are driving me. If I can listen, if I can hear clearly. Gil tells a wonderful story about being at the Zen Center and practicing generosity. And he was very committed to practicing generosity. Whatever people wanted, he, his mission was to provide it. And shortly he realized that the Zen Center had infinite needs. And that with being completely giving all the time, he was just complete, he was depleted. He didn't have uh, a chance to keep up with the demands of this infinite need. So we can't write ourselves a simple goal, just give, give, give. But we can be aware of the triggers that stop us from giving. What is it that gets in the way? Is it something that leads to our freedom? Are we more free by not giving? I think it's possible to overgive. I think about people uh, that I've known. Uh, I had an opportunity to be on sort of an underground railway in Seattle in the late 1960s, where people were going to Canada who uh, didn't want to be subject to the draft. And the way they would get to Canada is that somebody from Seattle would drive them across the border and drop them off and bring their car back because the car was easily traced. And so I was one of these people that had the uh, opportunity to help freedom happen. And then I came back with this car. And, of course, the the objective was to kind of keep the car going while the person was in Canada. Hopefully it was only going to be months, but as it turned out, it was years, and many times people never did make it back. 
So I, I had the opportunity to place these cards with people. And it was an amazing experience to have sort of a, a public vehicle. And somebody could use it for a week or two, and if they didn't need it, they would pass it on to somebody else. And within a small area, there were all these cars that were getting used. And, and it, it was an amazing thing to... It reminds me of that book um, uh, where it talks about paying tolls for people that are going through behind you. Acts of spontaneous generosity. It didn't take good cars. It didn't take, uh, you know, fancy cars or anything. But just having a little bit of slack in the system, having, having a few floating cars around was just wonderful for people. So what is it that we need to feel free in our generosity. Maslow's hierarchy, if you're familiar with it, talks about safety first. As long as we're safe, we've taken care of our survival. And then he talks about something that's more self-actualizing oriented. What is it that allows us to achieve our highest? But I like the Four Noble Truths a little bit better. For me, it really works having the first noble truth be that there will be unsatisfactoriness in life. Somehow it just appeals to my nature to have somebody say, you know, the truth of it is life is not going to be the way you want it. You won't get your way all the time. It's just, it just rings so true to me. And then that there is a cause for that and that there's a way to deal with that cause and that those ways are kind of laid out and clarified. So those four truths that we call the noble truths, to me, are so freeing. My greed leads to my suffering. But if I choose not to suffer, I can avoid it. One of the ways that I can avoid it is by not being too hot or too cold. The Buddhist tradition talks about the middle way, finding what is neither completely indulgent or expressive or completely repressive or uh, withholding. So my greed could be a boundless thing. I could say, you know, to really be satisfied, to really have a happy life, I want a, a blue BMW, and I want the six-speaker stereo system, and so forth. And I could have that. But it's not a middle way. It's, it's a my way. And so... My wish is not to have my way, but not to, not, have, not to have no way either, so that I have an active influence in my life. If I completely give away everything that I have, then I have no tools to use, I have no resources to do the work that I do that I find so interesting. I was just in Arizona, and I was doing some work with a, a group of people that were nature-oriented. And so we focused on a little place called Pipestone Springs, which is just south of the Utah border. It's in an area called the Arizona Strip. And it's an area that's a couple hundred miles wide and about 100 miles tall on the Arizona-Utah border where there really is nothing except beautiful vermilion cliffs and wide-open sand uh, and a few little streams that cut through that when there's rain, the streams fill up. But in that whole area, there's only one all-year-long running spring. <clears throat> it's at Pipestone Springs. And when the uh, settlers moved into the area, there were lots of Native Americans. There were Paiutes and Apaches and Navajos. And they would use this spring as they needed it. And in 1865, uh, the U.S. Army built a fort around the spring. And that was the, the last of Pipestone Spring as a publicly useful tool, resource. 
And so still to this day, we have this fort around Pipestone Springs. And the area is way less populated than it used to be. It's very nice to travel through, but somehow the greed that's represented by this fort really made me think, what forts am I building in my life? What forts are we as a culture building around free-flowing springs that could be nourishing? Other Native American cultures have a generosity to them. You may have heard of the potlatch culture in the Northwest. Potlatches were festivals where giving was the goal. And people that had resources would give blankets and would give food. And there was a competition to see who could give the most. And the winner was the person that gave the most away. I think it's an interesting take, interesting way of dealing with greed. So when we come down to it, the mind and the heart are the only resource that we have that continues. We can accumulate by putting a fort around a spring. Uh, We can uh, accumulate by going for the best bargain that we can possibly find. But ultimately, all we have is our mind and our heart. And where does greed come? When I sit with it, greed seems to me to lead to a separation, a separateness. Something that I am not or don't have. And in my practice, what my wish is, is to see the oneness that as I give something to someone else, it is also still within me. It's within what I define myself to be. So that if I have a friend that is struggling with an expensive, life-threatening illness, that I see that still within me and that I can reach out and I can make some contact. The Dalai Lama has a nice phrase. He says, there is no need for temples, no need for complicated philosophy, No need for things, really. Our own brain, our own heart is our temple. The philosophy is kindness and generosity. So greed is one of the afflictions of the mind, one of the stains that stains the cloth, that obscures the beauty of what we weave with our lives. And stains get washed out like a drop of water out of a lotus leaf. The afflictions fall away like a palm leaf from its stem. And finally, we can see more clearly, like dispersing the delusion, like the rising of the sun in the dark. So practice, awareness, the middle way, realizing the truth of the four noble truths, and being willing to be open and generous with each other. A way to practice with the first of the kalesas. So I'm going to end with a poem that I got from Norman Fisher, and I'll tell you about that a little bit later. But I'd like to take a little time now to have us verbalize some reflections. So what is your particular way How can you have it your way? How can you have it your way and still be free yourself and promote the freedom of other people? Where do you notice this in your life? Where do you notice the freedom of giving, the freedom of generosity and of catching greed before it gets too hot and too compulsive and too intense? Where do you notice inspiration from other people that have that ability to to give what's needed, where it's needed, when it's needed? Yes? I can think of, um, like, what, 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 what do my boyfriend and I want to do for Saturday? Like, he likes to go to car, car races, and I might like to go to something um, spiritual. So sometimes I have to give in a little bit and 
Great example. Thanks. I'm going to ask that we share our names, too, because this is a chance for... Your name is? Michelle. Michelle. Thanks, Michelle. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, this is practical stuff. Who else? Who else has something to share about their breaking through the bonds of having it my way? Chris? It's not exactly about having it my way, but just about... I think where the big great breakthrough for me was on greed, because I'm, I'm pretty greedy. <laughs> yeah, but I think um, it was really noticing that the pain, that it's got pain behind it. That fire, like you said, it's got that burning quality once you get hooked by something. But the, the delusion is that you think getting something is going to is the only way out of that. And it's really letting the letting, if you can let that wanting, if you can just be mindful of that wanting that then it ends of its own accord without you having to get the thing. And I mean, really studying cases like, you know, I'm just remembering a case where I was having this like unrequited crush on someone, you know, much suffering over this and wanting and wanting. And then, and then it just went away. And I mean, it never did turn into a relationship. But that, that moment of feeling so free when that ended, that was a big aha for me. You know, like, oh, this stopped without getting what I want. You know, it just ended trying to cultivate watching that in my practice and seeing that you, know, you can just hang out with wanting one more cookie or something and eventually the mind goes on to something else you know, and you don't, you don't have to satisfy the want and in fact if you keep satisfying the want you keep training yourself that that's the only way you know, and so you have to break that habit of, of, of believing that the only way to make this pain of wanting stop is by getting what you want it, it isn't. You can just watch it, and, and then it stops by itself eventually. And that's a you know, gradual training to see that. Yeah, thanks for sharing all of that. It, it makes me think of the first noble truth, this, this uh, truth of life that things will be unsatisfactory. You know, you can look at that as bad news or good news or just news. Yeah, it's the truth, you know, that the cause is the craving, not the not having the thing. It's, it's the actual feeling of the craving, right. not the fact that you don't have. Yeah. So don't be surprised that you don't have something that you want. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a chance to practice. Yes? So what is that that Chris was saying? What is that that pushes us to have that extra craving? I mean, is that really just yeah great your name was your Kate Kate Lewis raised his hand I think he's got some go Lewis I was thinking that um, something that I've noticed is that uh, I tend to think of um, these things as being continuum, like a part of a continuum, and at the other end of greed is generosity. And trying to think of one as balancing the other, but really, that's a, a delusion. I mean, it's the letting go. And I think that often there's a mask that happens when we want something very much, and we decide to be generous to ourselves and give us and give ourselves what we want. So instead of letting go of the thing. We say, oh, I deserve this. That would be nice. It would be kind of me to give this to myself. And so that's kind of a trap that seems to me to be part of the circle. Anybody else? Yes. Small and similar to Cookie, but. Your name is? Uh, Doug. Doug. Uh, I, Easter candy's on sale, so I bought all this Easter candy. <laughs> And I had these jelly beans that I love. And I noticed that, you know, in a matter of five minutes, I just whooped down several handfuls of these jelly beans. And I thought to myself, let's just try one jelly bean. I actually ate one jelly bean, chewing it and savoring it for a good three, four, five minutes. I don't know. And I thought to myself, you know, I whooped down like this, this, that, and the other. And I could really have probably five jelly beans instead of three, four handfuls. And, uh, you know, no reason to whoop them down like that. 
the satisfactoriness could have been there just with the experience of each individual children. So the, the fire, the, the euphoria, Andrea was talking about the euphoria that underlies aversion. That, uh, and she'll talk some more about that next time. But, but how when you finally get that there's something that you could just eliminate, if I could just eliminate, if I could just have something, there's this kind of a, yeah, whew, let's go, let's do this. And so you were able to kind of interrupt that and say, wait a second. Here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a couple will do. Thanks. Yes. Uh, Paul. Paul. Um, I sometimes feel like the greed is fueled by other people's greed. Like I would react to their greed by becoming greedy myself. It's a good uh, reminder. Uh, this article at the New York Times that I was reading had a little piece about Enron, and it said, uh, interestingly enough, that even though they had an ethical practice and uh, ethical statement about how they were to operate, the board of directors consciously decided to avoid or, or uh, not follow that ethical statement several times. And they, uh, you know, so, yeah, these things... Uh, are really totally at our free discretion, our decision. Uh, we have to decide in every moment, every every time. It's our life. It's our responsibility. It's our ethics. And and uh, we can have eight jelly beans or three or whatever. Yes, Andrea. first thing that came to my mind when you said it's habit. It's habit that keeps us going the next cookie, the next cookie. It's just a well-worn path. It's not one groove, it's a rut. So you kind of just get right in there. It's, it's hard to get out of those ruts. That's one thing I find out. And also like the second with Kristen, but for me the big aha around grief, and I, I have to say I'm the aversive type, so you know, I don't actually have a lot of greed. <laughs> Mostly I've wanted to be rid of things, but um, the big aha around greed was watching it through the process of wanting. Um, I had an experience on a retreat where I was really trying to focus on what we call sense restraint and not trying to look around. And I was doing a walking meditation and I noticed that every time somebody walked by, I really, really wanted to look at them. It was almost overwhelming to try to keep my focus down and not look at people as they walked by. So I just paid attention to that wanting, that wanting. And what I noticed as I paid attention to this over the course of several days, this kept going on, uh, was that as soon as somebody disappeared from my view, the wanting disappeared. And so I could actually watch the wanting get more intense as they got close. And then as soon as they disappeared, as soon as they disappeared, poof, I didn't want, I didn't, the wanting was gone. And for a while, it was such a joyful thing to watch that wanting go away that I was kind of into it. And then one day I realized, like Chris said, the burning around the wanting itself. There was an unpleasantness in the wanting. And yet I had already seen it would disappear when somebody walked by. So I, I recognized at some point when the wanting arose and somebody walked up, I thought, this is just going to disappear in a second anyway. Why do I need this? And it went away. And from that point on, that same wanting was just gone out of my, out of my experience on the trip. So that was one experience and inspiration of really closely with the wanting. Yes? I'm Mary. And, You're This wanting thing is and I think in your, your description it sounds really fun and some wants I notice just hang on and they really really hang on and I don't know what the I don't know um, I'm looking for what is the what is the key at those times um, practicing all these things I, and, and looking at it and, and seeing it but it doesn't go away and um, I think there's some magic. <laughs> but that, so it's just a question. I don't have an answer. It's a question. I don't have. 
lot of lots do come and go, and so there's something else, and there's the ones that seem to hang on. Something that occurs to me about that is they do hang on, but they don't, they're not always there either. I mean, I mean, they come and go. You know, it's the same want that comes and goes. And it, it's like looking at just noticing more and more carefully what triggers it, you know, and what, what kinds of things make it come up. And, what, and noticing, if you can ever catch even that, it doesn't go away for good because it's going to come back, but it goes away in a moment, you know. So if you can kind of break it down to seeing that instead of thinking of it as this big want that I have that goes on and on and it doesn't stop, you know, break it down into little moments of that want, you know, because each one of them kind of, kind of comes and goes like what Henry was describing. And sometimes that's helping me with things. You know. I'm just sinking below it into the other other emotions that are fueling the want. You know. It just kind of tingles a little bit. The whole situation around how that comes and goes. So, yeah, we're not promised instant freedom. <laughs> so, yeah. I think a big part of where I realized a good number of years ago that helped me go or was not necessarily just during, was that after the fact, after you receive things, I had, uh, in my profession, I had gone through three or four different companies that come and go and had to move three or four different times in like a four-year period. And I had all these things in these boxes and I moved three or four times, and I swore that I was like, boy, I, when I bought that, that was going to really make me happy. When I bought that, that was going to really make me happy. All of these things that really ended up just becoming burdens that I was carrying around for four years. And I just decided, you know, before I get anything, you know, you got to really think, am I going to want to carry this thing around with me for the rest of my life? So I just stopped. <laughs> it's good to notice. Well, I hate to end now. My, my greed says uh, I'd love to do this, you know, all evening. But uh, there may be some of us that still have to file our tax returns. So, so uh, let's just have a couple minutes of silence. And then I'm, I have a little poem from Norman Fisher that I'll read. And then we'll be on our way. I have had my dream, like others. And it has come to nothing so that I remain now carelessly with feet planted on the ground and look up at the sky, feeling my clothes about me, the weight of my body and my shoes, the rim of my hat, air passing in and out at my nose, and I decide to dream no more.